Hey guys, what is up? Welcome back to Flourishing with PTSD, a podcast designed to help normalize conversations around mental health, specifically in the context of PTSD, also known as post-traumatic stress disorder. If this is your first time tuning in for an episode, I would like to personally welcome you. If you are a regular listener or someone who occasionally pops in for an episode here and there, welcome to you as well. My name is Manda and I am the host. This is as good a time as any to let you know that I am not a medical professional in any capacity. I'm not a doctor, not a therapist, not a lawyer. I am, however, a survivor of my own fair share of trauma, and that's why I'm here, because so many of us are survivors of trauma, and we deserve to have a community where we can feel connected to each other and have a sense of community and learn from each other as we all go through it, right? And no one deserves to be alone. And I will also go ahead and put a trigger warning on today's episode. So make sure to check in with yourself and see how you're doing and then decide whether or not to continue. Wow, guys, we have had a pretty exciting kickoff to season four of the podcast uh, with a variety of guests and getting to hear some new voices as well as some familiar ones. And, you know, I try to practice gratitude for all of these really amazing things, you know, between these moments um, of, you know, burnout and anxiety, you know, Um, because, you know, I get so excited meeting new people that are doing things in their field to bring more to this conversation of mental health, of trauma, of PTSD, of sexual assault, um, all of those things. And, you know, between those moments of being a podcaster, I also have a full-time job and another part-time job. I've got a lot going on. And um, so between burnout, between spouts of anxiety, right, I try to practice gratitude for really this amazing network that we have all kind of created together and this community that we have. I mean, on Instagram, we are tight and I love it. I love getting DMs for you guys. I know you guys probably hear me say this a lot. I hope you hear me say this a lot, but I am just so grateful uh, for what we've got going here. So I am so excited to um, be here today with you. Um, I'm grateful you're here. I'm grateful you're doing your very best. Whatever form that is taking, I think you're doing great. I think you're doing a great job. And I hope you hear me when I tell you to keep going. Don't stop. Keep going. Keep chasing your dreams. Don't give up on yourself. Do some self-care, get recharged, and get back out there. So that's my little uh, motivational spiel. Thank you for uh, sticking with me. Um, and I'm sorry that the rollout for this season has been kind of slow. I have been swamped with things. Um, I barely know what day it is half the time. So I'm sure you know how it is. I'm not the only one. So anyways, today I want to talk to you guys about something that has more recently entered the conversation of trauma and mental health. I would say it started in the last 20 years or so from what I can tell. Um, And it's continuing to evolve. And I feel like it's more kind of talked about in research and people who are more familiar with this topic. Um, Whereas people who experience it and the people who listen to their loved ones disclose about this, we don't really know this very well. We know a very surface level version of this, but we don't exactly always have the vocabulary for this word when we're talking about a da- an experience, not a daily experience, but an experience that happens when someone um, encounters a trauma and a specific response. Um, 
And so, you know, we've talked in the past here on this podcast many times now um, about our fight and flight and freeze responses uh, in the face of danger, right? And let's first just for the record, define these terms really quickly. I like for us all to be on the same page um, and just know that these definitions and explanations will vary from source to source. But um, I would just like to add that for the sake of this episode, I am going to be making references and quoting from an article on psychologytoday.com and it's called Understanding Fight flight, freeze, and feign response by Kathy Malchioti, PhD. And she has some other titles on there, but um, honestly, I am scared that I will butcher them rather than do them justice. But just know that Kathy Malchioti is very well accomplished. (laughs) Um, Anyways, so okay, first things first, the fight response, right? So to give full perspective, we are talking about when you encounter a dangerous situation, and remember, danger doesn't always look the same. Danger can look a variety, of, a variety of different ways, right? Let's say you are an adult now struggling with CPTSD, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, right? And maybe that, you know, and just to clarify, CPTSD is the result of a variety or a series of traumatic events. It's not just one event, it's a series. So maybe prolonged abuse or many times of being attacked or assaulted or um, attempted, surviving an attempted assault um, or stalking or abuse. You know, like there's a variety of different ways, right? And then there's PTSD, which typically stems from one single event or one single trauma incident. Um, So just to make sure that, you know, we're kind of understanding that, right? So we have danger. We're encountering a dangerous situation. And there's a couple of different trauma responses that we are aware of, right? That we have come to articulate through research, through talking to survivors, um, and through survivors advocating and trying to articulate for themselves to the world what they've been through. So we have our fight response, right? We are familiar with fight or flight. The fight response is the option of fighting back. It's very self-explanatory. It's very, you know, straightforward. Um, So however the situation calls for, right, the circumstance of danger, if that's punching, kicking, screaming, biting, hitting, bringing out your karate or kung fu moves, that's your fight response. You're fighting back. Then there's the flight response, flight response. And that sounds pretty straightforward as well. If you can't fight, if you cannot, if the situation does not allow for you to fight back, to bite, kick, scream, hit, all of those things, then the option then is to flee. We run, we get out of there, we escape. That can take on a few different forms, but I feel like it's pretty self-explanatory, right? You get out of there. So those are fight or flight. We're pretty familiar with those. Now, Kathy Melchiotti articulates in her article another response very well um, with some psychology and anatomy jargon, but never fear, I'll break it down for you right after I read it. So she says, and I quote, if it is not possible to escape or fight, the limbic system then engages the parasympathetic nervous system to initiate a freeze or collapse response in the body, resulting in immobilization, restricted breathing, and decreased metabolism. In humans, freeze reactions may include real threats such as 
simple, uh, oh, sorry. Freeze reactions may include real threats such as possible assault or physical harm, but they can also be as simple as humming fluorescent lights, the whir of a fan, or the popping sound coming from a car engine causing individuals to automatically feel unsafe. End quote. Um, I love this explanation for a couple of reasons. You know, she's talking about, you know, the specific parts of the brain and body that are activated in a trauma response. And she's also talking about how something that may not seem so dangerous can um, initiate a triggered response. Or when Dr. Pam was here, she was talking about that, um, let's see, activated response. We get activated. We get triggered. Our body is aware that we are in danger. And when she mentions the humming fluorescent lights or the whir of a fan or, you know, the popping sound from a car engine, maybe if it backfires or something, you know, those are, those can be triggering sounds. So we know that those things themselves are not dangerous, but they can jar us into feeling like we are in danger. It reminds us of a time when maybe we were in danger. And a classic example is hearing a car backfire and it sounds a little bit like gunfire, right? And maybe a soldier who hears that gets triggered and gets put in a state where they feel like they are back in a very unsafe situation, a combat situation. Um, So she mentions this thing called the limbic system. And for those of you who are unaware, the limbic system is basically the part of the brain that is heavily involved in our behavioral and emotional responses, especially in situations of survival. So things like fight or flight, right? And if you want more clarity on this, I think Lauren from Me Too Many Voices talked about this when we did our episode on trauma memories in the body, uh, which is one of the top listened to episodes in the whole podcast, by the way. Um, Well-deserved. She is amazing and so incredible and so knowledgeable. Um, And she does a really great job of talking about this in a way that is super easy to understand um, and not full of that, you know, specific uh, field jargon. Um, But anyways, so we have our limbic system, which pays attention to our survival and can initiate our fight or flight response. Um, And you'll notice that 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 language and terminology there, our limbic system initiates the fight or flight. That's a very particular thing that I want us to pay attention to because guess what? It's not a fully conscious thing. That is an instinctual thing that our brain kind of takes over and takes charge on. But we'll get to that more in a minute. So Kathy Melchiotti also mentions the parasympathetic nervous system being activated by the limbic system or engaged by the limbic system, which remember is what activates our fight or flight. Um, it's our survival part of our brain, right? So this, the parasympathetic nervous system is responsible for conserving our energy with the idea that we need to have some energy stored up for later. Um, Again, that's also a very evolutionary thing that our body, that our brains have learned um, over time. Um, But that's a recurring theme in human cognition and psychology. Our brains do not, they do not like to waste any resources, especially when it comes to energy. So this is kind of bringing the body into a more still state of being to protect, to conserve energy and resources. We're going to need them later. So for now, we're going to just hold on to that. Also, another important fun fact about our parasympathetic nervous system is that it helps regulate digestion and going to the bathroom. So if this is out of whack, 
may be connected to trauma. If your parasympathetic nervous system is responsible for something like digestion or going to the bathroom, right? If that's effed up because of a traumatic event and you're always kind of activated and maybe you can't fully come back to a rest, like I don't, I think you call it homeostasis, um, where you're just fully relaxed and calm. If that is not happening, then maybe something like this could be messed up, right? That could be a physical, uh, I don't want to say reaction. It's a physical mm, presence, I guess, of a trauma response. And you're kind of just, you're activated all the time. Or maybe your baseline of relaxation is higher. I'm rambling. I'm going to move on. But hopefully you get the picture. So my understanding of the trauma response that's being talked about here when we talk more about the freeze right? We have fight or flight. And now we have our freeze response that we were just talking about is that when we are fighting and flighting, fighting or flighting, I don't know, I'm, it's 11 o'clock at night, I'm losing it. The limbic system will not engage the parasympathetic nervous system. When we are either in fight or flight, that parasympathetic nervous system, the thing that keeps us calm, that keeps us chill, that's kind of keeping us still, that is not getting activated, right? Because we are engaging the sympathetic nervous system, which is preparing the body for a high stress situation. So we have these two things that are kind of acting as the balance act, the balancing act of our nervous system, right? Our nervous system is kind of like our state of being. So if our parasympathetic nervous system keeps us calm and the sympathetic nervous system gets us moving, gets us ready for action to help us survive, if those things, if either one of those is activated, then our body will perform and our brain will perform as such. So when we go through this freeze or the freeze response, we are engaging that part of the brain and body that keep us still because we are not moving. We are immobile. So our parasympathetic nervous system, the thing that keeps us still, that keeps us immobile, that is storing that energy kind of gets activated to say, okay, you're in the spotlight, do your thing. Even though we're in a high stress situation, if your brain determines that this is going to be the highest survival rate option, it's going for it. And it's going to keep you still. It's going to keep you from fight or flight. You are freezing. Um, Instead of engaging the sympathetic nervous system, which prepares you to act, which keeps you mobile, which keeps you going. Um, So I hope that makes sense and I hope I didn't lose you. But um, with this freeze response, she mentions, and again, I'm just going to kind of articulate this for emphasis because we're all learning together, is that, you know, she mentions that the parasympathetic nervous system, keeping us calm and keeping us still, and I wouldn't say calm necessarily, I guess, but just keeping us still, right, to conserve energy, that gets engaged, which means that we are not fighting, we are not running, we are kind of shutting down. So she says that if we do not have the ability to run or fight, the brain observes that it has no other option and it instinctively takes another route. It shuts down and goes still, we freeze, and this makes it next to impossible to run as it immobilizes us and it keeps us frozen and deep breath I have to tell you that when I was attacked by someone I had a quick evolution of trying to flee I didn't try to fight I I tried to get out of there because that seemed like the best course of action 
But then it shifted to a freeze when it became apparent that there was no escape and the physical confrontation was closing in. I was not able to get out of there. And I, I knew it kind of before I was conscious of the fact that I couldn't get out of there. I knew I couldn't get out of there. Um, and so fighting wasn't an option either. And looking back, it is the hardest thing to understand what seems like a betrayal on my body and brain's part. Like, come on guys, what were you thinking? We are all on the same team and you activated the part of the part of me that keeps me still in in the face of danger? Are you kidding me? Cuz we all felt the impact of that. And it kind of feels like a very compartmentalized existence where I I'm against my brain and my body and my body's against my brain and my brain's against my body and me and it becomes a very compartmentalized existence especially when you have so much hatred for what should have felt like a choice and it didn't feel like a choice I wish that I could understand the headspace that I was in when I wasn't moving I don't fully understand that and I just know the psychology terms of it, but I don't understand. That's just the human in me. That is the survivor in me. Um, like, come on, brain, come on, body. How could you just shut down and leave me to go through that? How could you? Like, that feels like the ultimate betrayal. Like, nothing else cuts deeper than when a part of you betrays yourself, right? You can cut someone out of your life if they betray you. You can blame them and not really need to try and understand. Sometimes it's good too, but that's not the point. When, it's, when it comes from another part of yourself, it's, it's really difficult to come to terms with that. And the thing is, is that the freeze response, the logistics of it and the way it happens, it feels like a betrayal, but the response is not a betrayal. It is not a betrayal. That was your brain. That was my brain taking in and attempting to process a very dangerous situation. And based on what it was detecting, what it was seeing, before fully understanding, it automatically jumps into whatever action is believed to help you survive. And we are not promised to be undamaged or unharmed. The point is, is that we survive and then we deal with whatever the repercussions or the consequences are. And if you're listening to this right now, you did survive. You are surviving so far. Your brain and body did or are doing what it knows what what it knows to do. It reacted exactly as our neurobiology was designed to act. It sucks, but unfortunately, it's also genius. And to give grace for that, to somehow find a way to thank our bodies and our minds and our brains for helping us survive, it's a feeling that's not comparable to anything else. When you can forgive yourself and kind of unify that once compartmentalized self and bringing it back into one being, it's special.
And I'll say that I have moments of that. I don't think I have fully reached that point yet. I don't feel like a unified sense of self. Some days I am very compartmentalized. Like I have my box of trauma and then I have the box where I'm just living in the present. And then I have a box of other stuff that I don't want to touch, right? And the thing is too, is that different, and I'll I'll give you an example of how you know, different traumas or different dangerous situations call our brains and bodies to react to react differently depending on um, this situation. So in this situation where someone was attempting to sexually assault me, I froze because I didn't see, my brain didn't detect a way out. And so we froze. I say we being my mind, my brain, my body froze right? Froze until it was over, dissociated. There's still parts I don't remember. Fast forward a few years, and I talked about this on another podcast episode too, uh, Trauma with Friends, I think is what it's called. But I got caught in a riptide once with two of my other friends. And it got to the point where I truly thought that we were going to die. And I was actively thinking out there, man, I really hope that I don't freeze because if I fully went immobile, like as still as I did when I was attacked by somebody, I would drown. I would literally drown because I'm not moving, right? But that situation was a different kind of danger and it called for a different evolutionary response, instinctual response so that I could survive. And that's to kick. That's to swim. That's to keep your head above the water. That's to keep breathing. It's to keep looking around being mindful of the surroundings. That's what the situation called for. So that's what my brain knew to do. So don't think that if you froze in the traumatic event that you experienced, it doesn't mean that it will necessarily happen again. It depends on the situation, right? And some people argue, you know, can we kind of override that freeze response? Like maybe... For example, maybe like I have a fear of being sexually assaulted again, being attacked by someone again, right? That's a very real fear. And so maybe I'm afraid that I'll freeze again instead of fight. Because in my logical brain, right, when I think about it, it's like, oh no, I would want to fight. I would want to fight back and get out of there. I'd want to fight and then I'd want to run. That sounds logical to me. And I would want that. And so maybe we practice with muscle memory and we practice different self-defense. We practice how to move about your surroundings, how to maybe sit in a restaurant with your eye on the door. Maybe we talk about, okay, how, like, do I keep a bag on either side of me while I'm at, when I'm at a bar so that no one can sit exactly next to me, right? Or um, anything that kind of helps you stay safe and set those boundaries, and then maybe there's some physical self-defense that's involved. It's not a promise. When you are very well trained in self-defense or even offense, it is not a guarantee that you will suddenly never freeze under, you know, in the face of trauma. It's not a guarantee. No one and nothing can promise that. But I like to think that the better equipped we are, the more tools we have access to, We'll be able to engage with something. 
I like to think that nothing's impossible. I know that things are hard. (laughs) Really, really excruciatingly difficult. But they're not impossible. And as long as it's possible, they're achievable. So, if you're listening to this and something similar happened to you, maybe you, and I'll put a little trigger warning right here, um, but maybe you focused on an object at the time of the attack. Maybe a TV was on or you just chose something to focus on. That is also a very common response. And you're not bad. You're not weak. You are not pathetic. You are not less. That did not mean that you wanted it to happen. That did not mean that you deserved it. Mm -mm. No. The brain kind of on its own went to that place because it's a survival instinct. And you know how I know? You know how I know that? Even though I don't know you directly is because of how often it happens. And it breaks my heart to say those words. But it is a widespread response. It is not just you. I promise it's not just you. You are not alone. If you're listening to this and you've heard someone you care about confide in you that this was their response, that they froze up, that, and it was really hard for you to understand or believe, I'm here to tell you from firsthand experience, it's real. And it's hard to explain and sometimes even harder to live with. But give that person some love and validation. Tell them that that response is real. And that it's okay because it helped them survive. That love and that validation, those things will never be in oversupply in this world. Now, Kathy Melchiotti goes on in the article to give some background as to where this term of fawn came from. And it's really interesting. So we have freeze, we have fight, we have flight, right? And then we have talked about this fawn response, a fourth response. And I have to admit that sometimes I got this a little mixed up in my own understanding. I thought that fawn and freeze were kind of the same thing, but uh, they're not. And the more I learned about it, I was like, oh, geez. Um, And reading her article, I learned a lot and it gave me a lot more to think about. Um, And to sum up what she says, and again, the link to her article is going to be in the podcast details. She explains that the term fawn was introduced a little over 20 years ago in the year 2000, if you can believe that. Um, And she references Taylor and others who first started talking about, and I quote this, um, tend and befriend mechanism that was mostly observed in women presenting as, you know, tending to children and relationships and maintaining a social network. So when that translates over into the trauma world, you know, they saw this in women and were like, oh yeah, I guess that makes sense. Um, But in 2003, we get the word fawn officially coined by, uh, I believe, Pete Walker. And um, he brings it into the conversation of trauma officially, right? And I'm going to read what 
this article says about about all of this because Kathy Malchiotti writes it so well. So she says, Walker described fawn types, so meaning people that tend to fawn, um, are those seeking safety by merging their needs, wishes, and demands with others. These individuals respond to distress by forfeiting rights and boundaries, becoming compliant and helpful, somewhat like children described by Alice Miller's The Drama of the Gifted Child in 1979. Um, According to Walker, this response may become part of other trauma reactions, combining fight, flight, or freeze, depending on what's encountered. End quote. So what she's saying is that we have these three pre-established trauma responses that we are familiar enough with to articulate. Fight, flight, freeze. Okay, the three Fs, as they're known. Well, now we have a fourth, right? Fawn. And Fawn is seen not as freezing, but it's more like engaging with the threat in a way that might help protect the self or others. For example, this is probably really common in domestic abuse cases when there's a threat of harm to oneself or maybe one's children by the partner or someone else in the home. And when that threat is especially present, I guess, one of the victims might step forward and try to people please or kind of try and shift the focus so you are still very much in a heightened state of arousal. Like you are scared, you are nervous and maybe your body temperature's up. Maybe your breathing is a little shallow. Like, oh man, like, oh, I can't catch my breath. Oh, I'm nervous, I'm scared and it's fast. Um, and that people pleasing mechanism comes in as that fawn response. Like, oh, I want what you want. I totally agree with you. Yes, absolutely. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Um, get that people-pleasing response. And, you know, this article that Kathy Malchiotti wrote was published on Psychology Today, I believe on June 13th in 2021. And she adds something that I think has become more of a topic of conversation in these last few years than, um, and I'm going to read it for you, and she's talking about the term fawn and how it has this negative connotation associated with it, meaning that the word kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth, a bad negative feeling, like it's not a good thing. Like you hear the word and you're like, ooh. Um, and how she uses another word to describe the fawn response in a way that she feels does not have that much of a negative impact. Um, so this is what she says. Tafan is also described as having a lack of identity and boundaries and a general sense of being so overwhelmed one cannot act on one's behalf. Used to describe people-pleasing or passivity when confronted by possible assault, terror, or atrocity, the negative connotations of fawning are depreciative, pejor- oh geez, pejorative, shame-based, and perhaps culturally or gender-biased. Um, and I want to pause right there for just a second and say that I really appreciate her analysis on that because I feel like a lot of men would encounter shame or embarrassment on a different level to women because when you see a fawn response or a people-pleasing response, that is unfortunately really typical in women, right? It's not, it's not always, right? But typically that is 
seen in females more often or people who identify as female or have that those traits because you know that's what we're conditioned to do right we are conditioned to say oh yes honey anything you want absolutely I want what you want you do whatever you want and I am right there Uh uh-huh absolutely so I appreciate that she adds this gender bias not only because it draws attention to again something that women need to you know we need to address as women right um but also if men encounter this response they might be criticized seen as feminine seen as less masculine um and this adds to some toxic masculinity and feeds into you know some other issues but again and victim blaming like we do not need that we don't need it um anyways that's my little insert so she goes on later to say that in decades of work with survivors of assault and terror i have used what i believe is a less shame-based term to feign. That's F-E-I-G-N, to feign. A purposeful action taken in order to escape danger and diffuse threat. By definition, feign implies a more artful invention than just mere pretending. As a trauma response, an individual may simulate befriending, deferring, negotiating, and or bargaining in service of self-preservation or saving another. Feigning may also be part of the other three trauma responses, fight, flight, freeze. For example, some individuals report consciously pretending to be immobile, as animals automatically do to distract predators. In these cases, it is not just the body's dissociative response. For these individuals, it is a deliberate and decisive action when in danger. So I have to say, and maybe this will come out, all wrong or sound kind of weird or messed up or I don't know but that's so impressive like not to say that the other responses are not amazing and the fact that they keep us alive but seriously how awesome are our brains like literally the incredible abilities inside our own heads are not even fully explored or understood like this is evidence that we are still full like trying to understand the incredible ability of the brain and what it can do. Like, I, oh my gosh, it's so cool. You can tell I was a psychology student. It just is so incredibly fascinating. Oh, um, yeah. Like, the incredible abilities inside our own heads are not even fully explored. And yet these things can happen to protect us and others. That is seriously, seriously cool. So the point I think that Kathy Malchiotti is trying to drive home comes through especially clearly at the end. And I think I'm on board with it. I really think I am. Um, She's advocating for a change in the terminology that we are starting to use for this fourth response to help prevent those negative connotations from coming through. She is suggesting that we move away from using the word fawn which again, it feels like there's like a negative stigma or energy or connotation attached to it. And instead, start using the word feign, which elicits feelings of strategy, a sense of adapting to circumstances and being assertive in the person's situation in their own way. However, that translates from person to person. 
however that translates, yeah, from person to person. Um, but I'll tell you why I think this is important, and then we can part ways for the day. I feel like I dove into more of like the nerd side of things today, but I hope you'll learn something. But um, language is powerful. It's why during quarantine you saw all those TikToks of affirmations to say to yourself, right? It's why you saw people posting memes about I am beautiful or like that song. Don't judge my singing. I don't know the words. I'm sorry, but hopefully you know what I'm talking about. It's like so good. It's so good. And people have been videoing themselves, singing that to themselves in the mirror. And I'm like, you know what? Go off. Do that. Love yourself for the love of God. But sorry, that's my little tangent. But language is powerful. More powerful than I think we realize. Words can be incredibly damaging or empowering. And while Kathy Malchioti recognizes that using the word feign won't cause all the guilt and shame to magically melt away, she feels that this is a step in the right direction. And I can definitely get behind that as we continue to explore and learn and find new ways to understand the brain and the body and why they do the things they do. And maybe in the future, we'll find another word to better explain. But as we move forward and as we take these opportunities to um, explore and learn, I think that's a great way to advocate instead of saying fawn to say fain. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> Thank you as always for being here and learning with me and coming along on this journey with me. I am house sitting and so I am not recording in my usual quiet place. Um, I am honestly not gonna lie, sitting in a living room in front of a little heater because it is cold and um, it's now in the middle of the night. So that's a good time, um, which is also why my voice sounds terrible and you probably just heard the furnace come on. Um, but anyways, if you're looking for a therapist or getting connected with a specialist, uh, Psychology Today does have a network of professionals. Um, so check that out. This is not sponsored. Um, I think if I remember right, that is where I got connected with my therapist. Uh, don't quote me on that. I just remember that around the time that I found my therapist, I was scrolling through Psychology Today therapists all the time. They have like their specialties listed, whether it's trauma, whether it's LGBTQ, whether it's um, family trauma, whether it's d domestic abuse, whether it's uh, sexual assault, literally um, the, you name it, they've got it. Um, and I've been with my therapist now for two years and I love her. She is amazing and she's really good for me. Um, and I did call around to a bunch of different therapists and she's the one that I really liked. Um, so if you're, if you're curious, I encourage you to go and check that out. Again, this is not sponsored. That is just my true feelings. Um, anyways, keep doing good things out there. We can make this world a better place by taking care of ourselves and then each other. And sometimes in reverse. But anyways, in the meantime, let's keep ending the stigma one conversation at a time. Talk soon. Bye.